Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. In Romans 8, remember, we climbed to a top of a glorious mountain. And we discovered a blessed sign at the top of this mountain in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember, the Bible doesn't say no sin or no mistakes or no failure or no struggles or no pain or no disappointment or no suffering. It says there's no pronouncement of guilt. We have been saved by grace through faith. We are no longer under judgment or wrath. We are free. We discovered that the law can't control us and the law can't condemn us that doesn't mean there's no law for the christian we have both a lawyer and a law the lawyer is jesus and our law is jesus we're no longer obligated to our flesh but rather we were invited to allow the holy spirit to guide us and to control us and to Power uh, empower us. And so we discovered that we're free from the wrath of the Father. And we are free in the Father's Son. We are saved and sealed and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Our sins are forgiven. We are rescued from hell. We have reservations in heaven. In beautiful Colorado we have a saying. If you don't like the weather... Don't worry, it's about to change. The same is true here. The weather's changing. The weather dramatically changes in chapters 10, 9, 10, and 11. I think most of you know that Paul is a Jew. And that Paul loves the Jews. But the Jews have rejected Jesus as God's Messiah. They've resisted the Holy Spirit both the Hebrew Jews in the homeland and the Hellenist Jews in the diaspora seem adamant, recalcitrant, hardened in their rejection of the gospel and in their rejection of Christ. And so Paul begins to consider the promises that have been made to Israel. Where do the Jews fit into God's plan? Is there a, a future for the Jewish people? Has God canceled or, or postponed the promises made to Abraham and Moses and David? And Paul is going to confront these questions in chapters 9 and 10 and 11. 
In chapter 9, we see God's past dealings with Israel. And the key to understanding the chapter is to understand and accept God's sovereignty. In chapter 10, we see God's present dealings with Israel. And again, the key concept in the chapter is God's salvation. And in chapter 11, we see God's promised dealings with Israel in the future. And the key concept is sincerity. John Phillips writes, quote, Paul will show that as a nation, Israel was persistently rebellious and only a small remnant constituted the true Israel. In Romans 10, Paul shows that the Jew today is on the same footing as the Gentile and needs to accept Christ as Savior. In Romans 11, he shows that in a coming day, God will regather and restore Israel and fulfill the ancient promises which were centered in the people and centered in the land. And I believe that the rebirth of Israel is a divine harbinger of the coming national and spiritual future for Israel once God's purposes in the church are completed. Paul believes that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But he doesn't want to go to heaven alone. He cares about the Jewish people. He loves them. Paul loves them so much that he will suffer whatever sacrifice is necessary to preach Jesus and him crucified for the remission of sins. Paul will not go quietly into heaven alone. Paul wants his family saved. Paul wants his people saved. Which begs a question, why are Christians, why are Christians so heaven bent that they insist that their family come to Christ? What is it about the gospel and what is it about Jesus that creates the the situation in your life and in your circumstances where you have to tell your mother, you have to tell your father, you have to tell your brothers and your sisters, you have to tell your family and your friends about the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul believes that there is such a thing as heaven and it has to be obtained at all costs. And Paul believes that there is such a thing as hell and it has to be avoided at all costs. Paul speaks of grief and gifts deeply burdened over Israel's unbelief and thoroughly convinced Of Israel's blessings. Look what it says in verse 1. I'm telling you the truth. In Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow. And continual grief. In my heart. In chapter 8, remember, Paul peers from the top of the mountain. He sees eternity past. He sees eternity future. He understands that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. And he doesn't want to go to heaven alone. 
It's as if there's this supernatural tug. There's this deep longing and it wells up inside of his heart. And he remembers his Jewish roots. And he remembers his Jewish family. And in these most amazing verses, Paul will describe his motives for ministry. The motives include sincerity and sorrow and sacrifice there is a sense a painful urgency painful urgency towards those who are lost those who are without Christ those who are still separated those who are estranged from God and distant from God Paul remember Paul has been accused of being a traitor to the Jewish people and to the Jewish faith He's been called a traitor to his family and to his heritage. And some of you know what that's like. You come to Christ and you receive the biting accusation because you grew up in a religious tradition. You grew up as a Mormon or a Muslim. You grew up as a Roman Catholic or a liberal Protestant. You grew up as an atheist, a skeptic, an agnostic, an unbeliever. However it was that you grew up. And then you come to Christ and you experience his love and you experience his joy and you experience his peace. And you tell your family and you tell your friends and they think you're crazy. And some of them not only think that you are crazy, but they think that you've betrayed your family and that they've betrayed your culture. How could you turn your back? I didn't raise you that way. I didn't raise you To believe this or to believe that. Do you remember when you received Christ? Do you remember the emotion that welled up inside of you as you began to consider the spiritual condition of your family and your friends? And you realize that when Paul preached Jesus, he preached freedom from religion and that freedom included freedom from the law of Moses and the embrace of a new standard, a new covenant in Jesus. And remember, Paul was accused of embracing the Gentiles and abandoning his own people. When people are saved in Christ and they walk away from their religious traditions, they're accused of all kinds of betrayal. People come from Christ, from China. In India, they come from Central and South America. They come from the Watchtower and Track Society and the New Age. They come from all kinds of different backgrounds. So how do you feel about your family? How do you feel about them and how do they feel about you? Paul calls his conscience forward As a witness about his true feelings. His true feelings about the Jewish people. His true feelings about the Jewish nation. He calls his conscience forward. But the conscience isn't always a reliable witness. And so in this case Paul affirms that his conscience is informed and instructed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of truth. Paul's conscience confirmed his feelings in the Holy Spirit. Paul's motives for ministry isn't pride. 
It isn't Christian competition. It isn't so that he can have a crown or rewards. It isn't so that he'll be a famous apostle or have a big church or admiration of millions. Paul is motivated by sincerity, and he is motivated by sorrow, and he is motivated by sacrificial love because he's agonizing over his loved ones who have rejected the message of salvation in Jesus. He understands what it's like to hear the words, will you please shut up? Will you please stop talking about Jesus? Will you please not talk about Jesus and the new covenant and the resurrection? And Paul is beaten for the message and he's imprisoned for the message. And wherever Paul goes, he seems to create either a riot or a revival. Wherever Paul goes... The Jews become an unending source of trouble and resistance for Paul's ministry. And even Christian Jews sometimes seem bent on undermining the gospel of grace and and substituting for a degraded form of Christianity where you must observe the Jewish rules, you must observe the Jewish rituals which undermined the gospel of grace. And I suspect that Paul's admission of love would have been met with skepticism. You don't understand, I love you and I care about you. And the Jewish people are thinking, I don't believe you, Paul. So Paul says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. When he says that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Look, in the New Living Translation, it says, my heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief. Again, one of the challenges that Paul faced in his ministry was the accusation. Is God really faithful? Paul has argued that Christian believer is secure in Christ. Well, what about the Jewish people? They're chosen by God, yet now Paul is preaching and teaching that they've been set aside. God is building a church that consists of believers, Jew and Gentile, who have been united in faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And so there is the accusation, does does this mean that God has failed in his promises to Israel? Does this mean that God hasn't been faithful to Israel? And so Paul understands that the very character of God is at stake. But Paul will look at Jesus and rejoice. He will look at the spiritual condition of Israel and weep. Why? Look at verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. I want you to understand what you're reading. It in a sense, informs us what we've already read in verse 2. I have great sorrow, continual grief. Why? Sorrow and grief over the reality that people apart from God and apart from Christ are lost. You see, there should be two things that startle you about the statement. The first thing that should startle you about the statement is that Paul would give up his ticket on the bus that's going to heaven that he says with all of his heart, 
and the truth that he would gladly give up his place in heaven if it meant that every single Jew would be saved. It's like what Moses prays in Exodus chapter 32, verses 32 and 33. But now, please forgive their sin, and if not, then blot me out of the record that you're keeping. And the Lord replied to Moses in Exodus 32, 33, I will blot out whoever has sinned against me. In verse 3, it says in the New Living Translation, For my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters, I would willingly be forever cursed, cut off from Christ. Do you know what Paul believes? That people apart from the gospel and apart from Christ are cut off. Do you? I'm not asking you to believe that, even though it is true. What I'm inviting you to consider is what is informing Paul's sorrow and grief. What's informing his sorrow and grief, he really, really believes that there is a heaven that comes from Jesus and there's a hell that comes from rejecting Jesus. So how are we supposed to understand the love of a Moses and the love of a Paul? Of a Paul? We're only given a brief glimpse. But the ultimate revelation is in the heart of the Lord Jesus. Jesus isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should have eternal life. Paul only whispers in verse 3 the reality that people apart from God and apart from Christ and apart from the gospel are accursed. No one spoke more about hell than Jesus because it's such an awful subject. It's such a terrible reality. Paul is willing to go to hell for the sake of the lost. But it's that very sentiment that Paul acknowledges that they are lost. That they are separate. That they are accursed. In Exodus chapter 32 verse 33, when the Lord replies to Moses, I will blot out whoever has sinned against me. He isn't even for a moment suggesting that Moses gets to go to hell for his people. Or that Paul gets to go to hell for his people. Or that you have to go to hell for your family or your friends. Such a thing isn't possible. But what is possible is that that knowledge and that information begins to inform your heart. That's why there's so much sorrow. And that's why there's so much grief that Paul is experiencing. Shall we let Paul have this unceasing sorrow and pain all by himself? I think that Paul expects our sympathy in the spirit of God. There were grace-hating Jews in Paul's day who accused the apostle of being an apostate Jew who denied the faith of his fathers, bitter against his own race in order to cultivate favor with the Gentiles. I want you to think about what is happening. Paul is being accused of being a hater of the Jews. Do you think that the person who comes to Christ from Islam is accused of being a hater of Islam? 
Do you think that the person who comes to Christ in, from Hinduism becomes then accused of being a hater of Hinduism? Can you imagine the people who come to Christ from every religious tradition or no tradition at all, and all of a sudden their, their, their family begins to see them with fear and suspicion? Do you remember in Acts chapter 28, 21, verse 28, when Paul was arrested in Jerusalem after visiting the temple, the crowds were stirred. In Acts chapter 21, verse 27, they grab Paul. Someone screams at the top of their voice, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches against our people and tells everybody to disobey the Jewish laws. He speaks against the temple. He even defiles it by bringing Gentiles in, unquote. Paul had brought Timothy. And because he had a Gentile father and a Jewish mother, which the crowds didn't really understand, he was accused of undermining and upsetting Jewish sensibilities. And so how are we to think about this? How do we begin to comprehend the love of a man who is willing to be lost in order to reach his blind and disobedient kinsmen? Paul was willing to go to hell if that meant that the religious relatives would be saved. Do you understand that that at least minimum implies that Paul believed that there is such a thing as hell? Otherwise, why is his sorrow so deep and his grief so painful? And it becomes a meaningless statement or even a meaningless gesture unless it's real. I don't think that the text is asking you to be willing to go to hell in order to reach your family or friends, but I think that the text is minimum suggesting, are you at least willing to love them? Are you willing to love your family? Are you willing to love your friends? Are you willing to love the people who are your people? Are you willing to suffer ridicule and misunderstanding? Are you willing to have them question your sincerity and your love? Are you willing to pray for them? Are you willing to learn the simple gospel truth so that you can share it with them? Are you willing to at least be equipped for the task of tenderly telling them about Jesus? Are you willing to reason from the scriptures with your Mormon friends and with your Catholic friends and with your Jewish friends and with your atheist friends and with your friends of any religion and every religion and kooky religions. Do you know I'm offended? Why are you offended? Are you suggesting that my Catholic family members are not Christian simply because they're Catholic? No. I'm suggesting your Catholic family members are unsaved for the same reason that you were unsaved. I'm suggesting that they're unsaved for the very same reason that you were unsaved. Because you are in a religious tradition and you were in it lightly or heavily or sincerely or insincerely. You were involved in religion. You're involved in religious rites. You're involved in religious traditions. But you didn't know Jesus. You didn't trust him. Love him. Trust him. 
I am suggesting that all people and every people in whatever religious tradition who have resisted the gospel and who have resisted the Holy Spirit and who have rejected Jesus as the exclusive means of salvation, they remain blind and unsaved and lost. You may not believe that. In the deepest part of your heart and in the deepest part of your soul. And because you don't really believe that there's a hell that has to be avoided at all costs. Because you think in your mind that in the end it will all work out just fine. Then what is motivating you? Your unbelief? A.K. Chalmers has written, quote, On the rock near the top of Mount Washington, there's a marker on the trail to show the spot where a woman climber lay down and died. One hundred more steps and she would have reached the summit, the shelter that she sought. So many people are climbing up a mountain in order to try and discover the reality of the gospel and who Jesus is. And they search here and they search there. They search in a religious tradition. They search in a a philosophical tradition. They search in a scientific tradition. There are grace-hating Catholics and grace-hating Protestants and grace-hating religious communities. Jude wrote in verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered for all the saints. So what is that faith that was once delivered for all the saints? Isn't it the gospel of grace? Isn't it the message that Jesus came from heaven to the earth to die on a cross that you deserved for the sins and rebellion of humanity and that he himself has risen from the dead so that people can be saved? This is the gospel that caused missionaries in every generation To bring the gospel to the nations. This is the kind of love that sent Hudson Taylor to China. This is the kind of love that sent Livingston to Africa. This is the kind of love that sent John Wesley to the Americas. This is the kind of love where ridicule and pain and suffering and sorrow doesn't get in the way of telling our family and our friends The truth about Jesus. This is the kind of love that's stronger than fear. And stronger than death. This is the kind of love that drew God's son from heaven's throne. To the lonely mission field. Called earth. To die in agony. And shame. And blood. On a cross. And so Paul writes about Israel's special privileges before God. And I want you to keep this in mind, even as you're reading the privileges. Who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. 
This is a gospel that goes to them. Look what it says. He talks about Israel's special privileges. Who are Israelites? Paul outlines a series of special gifts and privileges that were given to his family and to his friends and to his people. He says, I concede that you're a special nation adopted by God with the revelation of God's glory, with the covenants, with the law, with the special privileges of worship, with the messianic promises, with the godly ancestry, including giving birth and allowing God's holy Messiah to come into the world. The testimony of the scriptures include Israel's unique adoption, Exodus 4.22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Deuteronomy 7.6, for you are a holy people the Lord, to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on all the face of the earth. Amos 3.2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, And then it says, therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. With that special relationship and with those special privileges came special responsibilities. The special privileges and the special responsibilities weren't given to the Chinese people or or the Hindu people or the Indian people or the African people or the Italian people or the Spanish people. No other nation has been given this unique position before the Lord God. Is God's election of Israel absolute and eternal? I believe that the answer is yes. There is a promise that's been given in the book of Isaiah in chapter 66. At the end of the book in verse 22, the Lord says, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. It was God's promise that guess what? When the last sunrise and when the last sunset takes place in the universe in which we live, there will be Jewish people. And then it says Israel's experiences of the glory of God. The glory here describes the presence of God. The glory is the Shekinah, or as some people mispronounce it, the Shekinah. When Israel was being led out of Egypt, the presence of the Lord appeared as a pillar by day and a cloud by night. The presence or the glory of God filled a special tabernacle to represent the presence of God. No other nation experienced the glory of God and the presence of God in this special way. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, and then again in verse 21, and then again in verse 22, it says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Verse 21, you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. You put the testimony that I will give you. Verse 22, and there I will meet you, and I will speak with you above the mercy seat from between the cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment in the children of Israel. There is a special presence, a presence that no other nation ever experienced. And then Israel's partnership in the covenants. A covenant, by the way, is a binding, enforceable, legal arrangement. 
Do Gentiles have a covenant with God? In one sense, they do. In the book of Genesis chapter 9, when God makes a covenant with Noah, he is making a covenant with all of humanity. But there's a very special covenant with the Hebrew people. In Hebrews 13, 20, the writer says, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. There is a covenant with both Jew and Gentile, in the sacrifice of Jesus. But this is a special covenant. This is a specific covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. God promised to give Abraham's earthly seed the token of circumcision. In Genesis 22, God confirmed the promise to Abraham's seed, which is Christ according to Galatians 3.16. When David, with David, God made an earthly Kingdom covenant, the one that one of David's descendants would sit on the throne forever in 2 Samuel 7. The angel Gabriel told Mary, the mother of Jesus, in Luke 1.32, that Jesus would be great, that he would be called the son of the highest, and that the Lord, the Lord would give him the throne of his father David. God says that he'll make a new covenant in the future with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, according to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8 through 12, which is quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. In connection to the promise to bring Israel back into their land, to take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, to put his spirit inside of them, to make them walk in the statutes and keep the ordinances. And then he talks about Israel's stewardship of the law, the glory, the covenants, the law. What Paul means is that the Jewish people, not the Hindu people, not the Chinese people, not the Italian people, not the Korean people, the Jewish people were entrusted with the Bible, with the word of God. Every single Old Testament writer was a Jew. Other nations may have received instructions from God, but it was always in relationship to Israel. No other nation received a direct word from the Lord unless that direct word to the pagan nations arrived via a Jewish prophet. Whether the Assyrian people who were told of their impending judgment, the Egyptian people who were told about their judgment, the the Hittites or the Ninevites who were warned by Jonah... There were written messages, Isaiah chapter 13, chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22. But these warnings to the nations were given to Isaiah to be read by them. And Israel's worship in the temple. The word service, by the way, when it says the covenants, the giving of the law, the service. You'll notice in your Bible that of God is... In italics. The service is a single Greek word. It's latreia. It's a word that means. The function of a priest. In the distribution of worship. So the word refers to acts of worship. Ordinances. In connection to worship in the tabernacle. Or worship in the temple. We might even think of this as temple worship service. 
By the way, these services will be resumed in the millennial kingdom, which we learn about in the book of Ezekiel. But at that time, the ordinances and offerings were in the past to prefigure the sacrifice of Jesus. And in the future, to look back on the sacrifice of Jesus. Galatians chapter 4 verse 9 says, But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire to be in bondage again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. In that passage, Paul is making reference to the forms and ceremonies of Jewish tradition. And then he talks about salvation promises. Salvation promises are found in Abraham. Kingdom promises in David. There's no salvation promises or kingdom promises that are ever given to the Gentiles. Now I want you to think carefully. That in spite of all of these things. In spite of salvation promises. In spite of the worship in the temple. In spite of the commandments and the covenants. And all of these other things that Paul has been talking about. Paul points out. That apart from Christ. And apart from the gospel. Apart from Christ. And apart from the gospel. Theirs is a future apart from God, disconnected from God, estranged from God. This is why he's saying what he's saying. This is why he himself would wish himself to be accursed if it meant that his family could be saved. And so he talks about the family's heritage in verse 5, of whom are the fathers... And from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. When he says, of whom are the fathers, who is he making reference to? He's talking about Abraham. He's talking about Isaac. He's talking about Jacob. He's talking about Joseph and Judah. He's talking about the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And from whom, according to the flesh... Christ came. He is talking about the reality that Jesus is physically, anatomically, genetically connected to the Jewish people. To Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. And that there are fathers. And then he talks about the Messiah. Who Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Haven't you ever wondered? Haven't you ever wondered? Well, why do, if Jesus is really God, then why doesn't the Bible say Jesus is God? Look in, in this verse because there it is. Hidden away. Hidden away that, that even the Jehovah's Witnesses forgot to pervert and distort this verse in their New World Translation. Do the math. Check out the verbiage, noun, Christ, verb, is, object, God. Read it again, Christ is God, Christ is God, Christ is God. 
I know, for the people who reject that Jesus is God, they're going to go, I, yeah, I know it says that, but I don't really believe it. In Romans chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Jesus is born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Jesus is a Jew. In John 1.14, it says, the word becomes flesh. Hebrews 2.16, for indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Colossians 1.16, for by him, that is Jesus, all things that were created, that are in heaven and that are on the earth, whether visible or invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created by him and through him. In Genesis 1.1 it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In Colossians 1.16 it says, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. What is Paul doing? Why is he saying all of this? What is he doing and what is he trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us about the sovereignty of God and the majesty of Christ. And Paul is defending himself. And by defending himself, he's defending you against the charge that God has been unfaithful. Because when you tell your family and your friends about Jesus, almost certainly someone is going to object. And they're going to accuse God of being unfaithful to them. But Paul shows that God isn't unfaithful to Israel. He will show that Israel's own scriptures have foretold the temporary rejection and then the salvation of the Gentiles. He then shows the great future blessing which will come to Israel in God's sovereign mercy. Paul is saying all of this because the blessings of God were given to Israel so that Jesus Christ through Israel might bless and save the world. And then he says, the most obnoxious and threatening thing that a Jew could hear, Jesus is God. And in spite of these blessings, in spite of these gifts, In spite of these privileges, Israel rejects the Messiah. And the presence of these blessings and the presence of these gifts and the presence of these privileges will never be enough to save you. Because blessings and gifts and privileges apart from Christ and apart from the gospel... Do not save you. So in spite of all the blessings and privileges and benefits that come from being in your family, being a part of your family and a part of your people, Paul knows that we have to embrace Jesus. Israel persecuted the new band of believers and no one knew this better than Paul. 
And by the way, no one hated the new sect of Jesus followers more than Saul the Pharisee. Does Israel's resistance and rejection imply that God has failed in his plans, in his promises? Paul's answer is no. Does the rejection and the resistance of your family and friends suggest that the gospel of Jesus has failed? Or that the story of redemption isn't important or doesn't matter? Has the gospel failed? Because there are people that you know and love who haven't embraced the gospel. What do you think the answer is? That can't, that's exactly right. The gospel can't fail. So what motivates you to reach your family with the gospel? Grief? Sorrow? Is it a grief and a sorrow that has a clear picture of the consequences of what happens when people dismiss the gospel and dismiss Jesus? Let me just be clear here. What motivates Paul? He's motivated by love. He loves them. He's motivated by sorrow and grief. Why? Because he knows that there's a heaven that has to be obtained and that there's a hell that must be avoided. In order to reach the people with the gospel that you love... Doesn't it make sense that you have to believe the gospel? Doesn't it make sense to you that you have to love and trust Jesus? Doesn't it make sense to you that you have to believe the word of God? And doesn't it make sense to you to be a student of the word of God? And doesn't it make sense to you to be patient? So that you can be sensitive to the feelings and needs of the person or people that God has called you to speak to? And now all of a sudden we begin to understand something. As Paul has stood on the top of the mountain of Romans chapter 8 and he begins to make his way down this gigantic mountain, he sees the reality of the mission that's still before him. You see, there's a reason why God put that loved one in your life. There's a reason why you love them so much. And there's a reason why you care for them so much. God's placed that in your heart. You grew up in that religious tradition and you know which one I'm talking about. And you love your family. And you love your friends. And you want to see them. In heaven. What are you willing to do? Let me suggest to you at least three things. Number one, continue to love them. Number two, continue to pray for them. And number three, number three, open your mouth and tell them the truth about Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, what an, an amazing and an eye-opening passage. What would prompt a person to make the claim that they would be willing to give up their ticket to heaven and even go to hell if it meant the salvation of their family, if it meant the salvation and redemption and reconciliation of their people. Lord, as we begin to explore and even think about that amazing statement, Lord, we're convinced that minimum, that there is a heaven and that there is a hell and that there is such a thing as being lost and that there is such a thing as being found. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would awaken in our hearts a deep, deep love for and commitment to reaching our family and our friends with the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Mm-hmm.